What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Write Who You Know. I'm Matt Hausfetter. This is the Screenwriting Podcast, where we talk about everything behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. I am feeling good today. It's Monday. Uh, We had a long weekend. It was Good Friday. Uh, Into something Saturday, into Easter Sunday, I got a lot done. I, um, I went and saw the Mario Brothers movie with my wife, which was awesome. Uh, I went and saw it in Sherman Oaks in what was the Ridgemont Mall, then turned into the Galleria. Now it is a a sad excuse for a mall. Um, but I saw Mario, and it was fucking awesome. And it wasn't convoluted or complex. The story was very simple. It was, we got to save Luigi in the Mushroom Kingdom. And Bowser's B story was that he wanted to marry Princess Peach. Uh, and it just gave you everything you wanted. The Mario music, all the Easter eggs, all the characters, Mario Kart set piece, Donkey Kong set piece, Cranky Kong. Oh, man. Um, I can't wait to see 500 more Mario movies. Um, what else? I watched The Ten Commandments, which I love. I don't know if you've ever seen The Ten Commandments. I know that's a silly thing to say. You should watch The Ten Commandments. It's like three and a half hours long. Uh, starring Charlton Heston, uh, Yule Brenner, uh, and Baxter. It's great. It's great. Uh, and I love it. So let it be written. So let it be done. Uh, in fact, the famous Red Sea parting uh, scene was... Um, uh, that's what is now the parking lot of Paramount Pictures, and you can still see the the backdrop of what they used in the Ten Commandments. Anywho, uh, and yesterday was Easter Sunday. We did a beautiful egg hunt, went to my neighbor's house. They had an incredible gala, had courage bagels. They had an egg hunt for my two-year-old daughter. Uh, she got a stuffy bunny. It was fucking awesome. Awesome. Uh, let's see today. I, uh, I pitched a show to some producers. I think it went well. I, uh, had a meeting with, uh, one of the giant streaming companies, uh, about fixing one of their animated movies. Um, and, uh, just sort of waiting to hear back on all that and, um, spoke at USC last week, which was awesome. Uh, we continue to push the ball up the hill. Brick by brick, we build this house. We follow this dream of screenwriting. Uh, and we, we rock it till the wheels fall off. Speaking of rocking it, we have a great episode of Write Who You Know today. Andy Secunda is my guest. Andy is so awesome. Uh, he is a giant foodie like me. But when I say foodie, it's not in the like, oh, he likes French. Uh, he likes garbage like I like. He likes sheet cake with icing and sugar and sweets and hamburgers and sodas. And um, I lured him over to my house with the promise of Armenian deli, which we had. And it was awesome. We had turkey and tuna, basturma. We really ate all around Armenia, some might say. We did land, sea, and air. Um And then we recorded this podcast, Uh, and I was so excited to talk to Andy because not only is he a super nice guy, but he has written on amazing shows 
for years. He's worked on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. He has worked on The Goldbergs. He directed and wrote on uh, Schooled. He just is awesome. He's so great. And uh, he's currently working on a pilot for FX with Aaron Gibson, Alessandro Minoli, uh, with Paul Feig's Powder Keg producing. Uh, he has been in episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's playing Joseph Goebbels on Mel Brooks' History of the World Part Two, now streaming on Hulu. Uh, and you may, uh, you may run into him at town just stuffing his face with milkshakes, apple pies, hamburgers, whatever. Uh, and we ran into each other recently and I begged him to do this. Uh, and then he forgot about it. And so when he was in my kitchen, I was like, oh, come follow me upstairs. And he, he did. And then I sort of like put a gun to his head and, and made him do this podcast. Uh, and it turned out great. Uh, we talk about something that is so interesting, which is lunch. Uh, if you are a writer and you've been in a room, you know how important lunch is. It can set the tone for the entire day and its productivity. Uh, Andy's going to walk us through his favorite lunch places. He's going to tell us some lunch horror stories. He is going to tell us about being banned from the coffee order sheet on one of his shows. Really stuff you're just not getting on any other podcast. So uh, strap in, settle back, Crack your knuckles, pull the lazy boy lever, uh, and dial yourself in for another episode of Write Who You Know. Pass. Nope. We love Matt. It's just a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us when you have some bigger attachments. Tell them write what you know. No, tell them write who you know. I just handed uh, Andy Secunda here the book that is like a compiled list of unsold TV pilots from 1955 to 1980, I think is what it says. Uh, that's 88. 88. Yeah. Because Andrew told me he's starting a podcast about TV pilots. That's right. It's called uh, TV uh, Co-Pilots with uh, myself and... At least that's what we think it is. <laughs> I, I like the name. We can workshop it if you want. Um, with uh, myself uh, and Sean Conroy. Uh, it's not out yet. It'll be out soon. So go to at Secunda and uh, see when it's out. <laughs> Here's one called Hello Dare. It came out in 65. Are the, are the log lines in there? Uh, let's see. Marty Allen, Steve Rossi. Steve Rossi played two bumbling television reporters. Roland Winters played their boss. Captain Ahab, two distant cousins, a naive Southern girl, and a streetwise Las Vegas showgirl. Uh, inherit their uncle's New York townhouse, a lot of money, and Captain Ahab, a ninety-year-old talking parrot. Oh, they're very. This is you can't lead with <laughs> that's the crazy. parrot unless, <laughs> unless the parrot is like Mister Ed. Do you think that's what it is? <laughs> Honestly, like it, it does have him in top billing. I feel like he would be higher on the call sheet than one might assume. Maybe he is. Maybe he is that that is what it is to keep the money. The two cousins have to live together and care for the smart mouth parrot. Matt, let's promise that uh, when we go, we will put a lot of ridiculous requests for inheritance money, should we have any, to pass on. I would love to pass on some money to my family. Oh, uh, your family? They're going to ruin this whole bit. They are. Oh, sorry. Yes, right. No, I hate my family. I'm, I just... It has to go to your family. Oh. I have no one, so... That's not true. You have uh, you have legions of fans <laughs> online and at home. Yes, I have no dependents. I mean, <laughs> other than my parents, who I'm hoping will precede me. Um, but 
you know, into the great beyond. Nothing, the, nothing personal, mom and dad. By the way, Andy, I want to know, uh, and you may have told me this before, but I do smoke marijuana, so forgive me. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Greenwich Village. That's right. In the heart of the city, on the mean streets. I have, They uh, actually were mean streets at that point. Then they later became, you know. Nice streets? Gentrified streets. <laughs> So, uh, did you go to college out east, back I, east? I went to Ithaca College. Uh, primarily, it would have been one of the big three film schools because that's what film schools because that's what I wanted to. I wanted to be a director and still, you know, am practicing directing. Um, but uh, but I was a little too close to home, so mm-hmm. I went to Ithaca College instead. Okay, and were you doing improv in college? Like, when did you know I want to be a writer and performer? Um, I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was seven years old. Really? What, 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 what did you see at seven or six or whatever that, that made you want to be a filmmaker? You know, there was the obvious one. Uh, and then there was, a the obvious one being Star Wars. And then oh. the less obvious one, uh, was, uh, Claymation by Will Vinton, which is a stop motion animation with clay. And I was just like, that's the most crazy thing I've ever seen. And I really got into uh animation stop motion animation i would make my own films when i was a boy with my super 8 camera and were you editing them in camera or like mostly editing them in camera i had an editing thing but you know they weren't really <laughs> shown to anyone so <laughs> it was really just more of an experiment but uh yeah i would uh, i would animate all my all my uh star wars figures and uh, a bunch of stuff like that that's really cool um i want to hear so uh, you're at Ithaca College. Were you? Were you? What did you study there? Film. Right. Okay. Yeah. Film. And did you meet a group there? Were you already doing improv? Like, wh- wh- how are you scratching your creative itch aside from I have to go to class because I'm I'm paying to be at college? Well, the the film the film students were pretty tight and and uh, and they were they really let you get your their hands your hands on the cameras early. There was another reason that I went there. Um, so we were shooting stuff almost immediately. I was in a lot of writing classes, and then also uh, there was a sketch show that um, is, all of these things uh, date me as very old. No, listen, I'm not going to date you. No one's going to know you can be nebulous <laughs> and ambiguous. Well, if you say that the uh, sketch show uh, did not go out over the internet, but it went over the uh, community access cable, <laughs> you're in a different era. Listen, <laughs> but, but we don't know what era, and I think so many writers are it's bad true. at math, they won't be able to, or, or would-be writers are so bad at math, they won't be able to place you. Uh, fair. Um, so uh, I auditioned for and got on, and eventually was the producer of in my uh, senior year, um, the Nothing Special, which was, when I got there, it was actually tremendously like funny people and like uh, many of them really adept performers and just incredibly funny. And, um, uh, but the Nothing Special was named, I think, by uh, drama majors years before we all got to it, so. Gotcha. Um, and while at college, we're not like, responsible for the pun, is I guess what I'm saying. When, when, and when you got out of college, were you immediately looking to make a film? Like, what were you? Now that you had your degree, you're like, okay, I'm gonna plant my flag. Or like, what was your plan? Or even if you didn't have one, I'm sort of curious what you thought was step one to pursuing a career in the arts post college. Uh, my 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 thought was, I'm gonna be, you know, Steven Spielberg, Scorsese. I'm gonna, you know. Uh, of course, you gotta. You were saying this at lunch, like you have to. It's almost you. You need to be deluded. Of course, <laughs> a little yes. bit. That was yeah. I was saying to Matt, the only way, to, the only way to retain your sanity to a certain degree is to uh, 
is to is just completely delude yourself. We were talking about the development process, and it's like by I think there was a certain point after being in development several times that I realized like if I didn't believe at the beginning that this was definitely going to be going to definitely go the distance and be a hit, then there's like no no matter what level of money, it's just like well this is too. This process is horrible. Yeah. Why would anyone engage in this unless it you really felt like it was gonna and I had a I had a pretty unbroken uh chain of success for a while. So I was also deluded in that way in terms of selling stuff and having it go somewhere. Um anyway, uh, I jumped ahead. What was the Co- post college, like first move? Post college Did you stay in New York? I did stay in New York. Um, I resisted LA a lot again because I was like, I'm a New York filmmaker, you know, <laughs> not making a film. Jim Jarmusch over here. That's right. Who I was obsessed with also. I bet you are you, um, you, you, you I was gonna say you film nerd, but we all are. So yeah, I guess that's yeah, it's not yeah. it's not uh it's not it's not my little corner of yeah. interest. Um but uh, yeah, I was like, gonna, I was like, all right, I'm gonna write a script, and I'm gonna shoot this super low budget thing, and uh, you know, I'm gonna ask my parents for the money, and you know, they've been supportive of me. They got me a super eight camera. They they're gonna be supportive of this. They're gonna give me the money. I'm gonna shoot it, and that's it. And I wrote my thing, and I asked them for the money, and they went, no. Um, <laughs> they said pass. That you got passed on by said, your parents. How about you get a job instead? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, I, I didn't do that. I just went through a, a series of, uh, you know, pay, you know, day, day gigs. Yeah, what were a, some of your first gigs? Nothing. When of, your parents say get a job, like, what were, were... I mean, you know, busboy, uh, like, I never even made it to waiter. All of them were things where I was just like, <laughs> I would either, you know, ju- bag it and move on or be fired. Um, at one point, I was, uh, uh, I was... This was actually at the point that I started to get into improv, um, where I was, I was performing um, at UCB. So I was performing like four shows or five shows a week, which is pretty insane. That's a lot in any at any juncture of the uh, of the uh, of the improv of improv history, unless you're like with a touring company or something, which I never was. Um, and I was teaching four groups during the day. But that none of those were really paying that much. So I would wake up at five in the morning because a friend set me up with this job where I would go to this Japanese news station. And uh, this is again dating me. I would switch the tapes. Oh wow! From one segment to the next segment, and they were all lined up. And then I had to follow the thing. And um, you know, and no one spoke any English there except me. And so every once in a while. Because it was like so early and I was like performing at night, I would be falling asleep in the middle of the live broadcast <laughs> and someone would shout at me in Japanese and I would get startled, wake up and pop the next tape in. I love to think that you were like, um, what's the name uh, when you like directly work under somebody, you know, like an apprentice. You were a, a VHS uh, cable switching uh, tape apprentice. I love that. Getting yeah. berated by... Uh, your bosses in Japanese. That's hysterical. Okay, so then what would you what what do you say is like you got your first major break? You know, like when did you really feel like okay, you know, was it a first script that you wrote that you got the attraction of some representatives, or was it being in the in an improv in a spe- specific improv troupe? You know, 
it probably is with the two Andys. I was in a comedy duo with Andy Daly, and um, we were just in the alternative comedy scene. At this, you know, it's sort of it was after that 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 we sort of both uh, acclimated to UCB, uh, and then that became kind of the center of my life. But when uh, with the duo, we were just uh, performing around and um, uh, doing, you know. Uh, doing pretty well we weren't like the mark marins and the you know the you know the gene Groffles that were sort of the 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 shining lights at the time but the um but we were you know very well thought of to the point where uh another duo actually do you know sloven and allen mm-hmm. um eric sloven and leo allen i'll, I'll never forget this because it's just one of the most honorable things i've ever experienced in show business they were another alternative comedy duo with kind of a similar sensibility they were both sort of we were all sort of dark and meta and kind of commenting on the 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 duo form as we were doing sketches and they recommended us to their manager um which was uh interesting so we had very menschy of them to do that it's just incredible like you're you're pointing your manager to someone with the same brand as you so um shout out to both of those guys just just angels um and incredibly talented funny people to boot um so uh so that was sort of an option however i was uh kind of a kind of a half uh um nepo baby let's say in the sense that my sister was an agent um but what was interesting was my sister uh, Ruth Ann Secunda, who anyone from that era will, you know, certainly in comedy probably would know, um, who was uh, successful and really adept at building early comedy careers. However, we went through four runs of our show, of our sketch show, and I kept saying, well, you know, you can come see it, whatever. And I wasn't even pushing that hard because I was like, I don't know. You know, how, this is again delusional. I was like, I don't know how how much I want my sister to be my agent, um, and uh, it's not like just take the opportunity, you idiot. But uh, it didn't matter because I kept telling her about the show, and she kept saying, Oh yeah, 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 I gotta come, I gotta come, like any other agent that you have love a contact it. with. That's and incredible. She never came to the show, and it was only when this other manager, who was Peter Principato, was interested in us that my sister. Uh, I don't know if she would deny this. Got a little nervous. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I can't have somebody else scoop me on my own brother." <laughs> That's incredible. And then she signed us. Wow. Okay. And what was that like working with your sister? It was uh, difficult. <laughs> I'm sure. That's a whole other podcast. I mean, she was. She was. I mean, I. We really. It was really uh, good fortune in that she was. You know, I come from a show business family. My father was a madman. Um, before I became a teacher uh, at NYU. Um, when you my, say madman, you mean like Don Draper? No, he was an insane person. Okay. And uh, he had a lot of issues. <laughs> I didn't I know if you be, meant like he worked in the advertising. I shouldn't say madman. That's not the appropriate term. Um, no, yes, he he worked in advertising. He was on... Uh, he was he was uh, he was very successful. Where did he work? Do you mind if I... Uh, J. Walter Thompson, uh, NWAer. He then formed Barnum Secunda. Um... And I don't know if there was another one in there. Um, so yeah, he had a he had a great run. That's cool. Um, and I think retired on his own recognizance and was like, "This is too stressful. I don't know if that's been <laughs> I'm out <laughs> any experience you can relate to." Um, but uh, so um, 
What was the genius thing I was saying? Um. Uh, anyway, the thing I was just going to say about my sister is like, yes, it was. There was there was many conflicts uh, that were sort of you know she was my big sister, so it was a lot of a lot of uh, pushing me around in ways that I probably she probably wouldn't have with her other clients that she had a certain air of politeness with. Um, but uh, but she was also fantastic. She was like, you know, it's probably no one no one who was building that kind of career at that point could have had anyone better. So was she helpful in you securing like one of your first jobs, like one of your first writing and performing jobs? And if so and if and if not, that's totally cool. I'm just trying to get to what what would have been like your first official Yeah, I really didn't I really stretched that out, didn't I? No, so, not at all. So basically uh we had a little heat from notoriety in our sketch shows we mm -hmm. were well thought of and my sister was the kind of person who could take a show like that or a stand-up set or something you know like a, a um some kind of performance pack the audience with all the appropriate people that might want to hire you for a development deal or some kind of situation where they hire you to sort of package something around yourself yeah which was obviously something that happened much more at that moment in time uh, which is people would pay a lot of money for newcomers who just seem to have a distinct voice and roll the dice on them um and uh we would do we would hone the shows in new york come out to la and perform it here and sell sell it get, get a deal and then go all right is there anything gonna happen and then you know most of the things would go the way of development and they would then we would go all right we would go back to new york so i mean there was a point where we would like make enough we were talking about you know your perception of money early on and it's like you know it wasn't uh, you know uh, uh, a king's ransom but it was like oh yeah i as a person in my 20s i can yeah. <laughs> so yeah. i can live on this yeah this is amazing so i would go back and to brooklyn and i would uh you know, I was living because I couldn't afford to live in Greenwich Village anymore. And I would just be like, all right, well, I'm teaching classes and I'm doing, I'm improvising and I'm, you know, and now I have some, some money in the bank. So were you doing like traditional, like pilot cycle stuff at this point when you say like, I was going to LA. Yeah. yeah, It was more network there. That point was just more pure network come out in, uh, in the spring ish or the summer. It would usually drag on till the fall. We would sell something. We would kind of work with them. And then for a few times in a row, it just wouldn't go further than that, yeah. uh, which was really a shame because I think we would have turned in a great... We had a couple of pilots that were great. And one year we went to the Aspen Comedy Festival and put on a show and that was a big hit and uh, it was really fun. Um, and uh, and uh, that... And all of our, hilariously, all of our, all of our shows were basically about a feuding comedy duo. And then toward the end, it's just like, well, you can't work in that close proximity with someone. <laughs> and if there is no show that's like, hey, we're paying you a lot of money to be on TV and stay together, then at a certain point, you're just like, okay, why don't we, why don't we call this? <laughs> so, um, so, so you knew how to write then because. Did you, was that what you learned in college or did you like teach yourself or like read enough scripts when you, you know, cause you're talking about like, Oh, we would go sell something. Like, how did you know, you know, interior means inside exterior means outside, like slug lines, action lines, dialogue. Like, is that something you, you just learned at Ithaca at filmmaking school? No. Um, 
Although I did appreciate filmmaking school. Um, film school. I can't believe I called it filmmaking school. <laughs> That's what you're doing there. Come on. <laughs> what, what are we in a rush? Why are we shortening it? Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I actually knew most of that about format and the structure of movies and everything else because I was obsessed since I was seven. Okay. So I had already like. You had seen screenplays and. I'd, yeah. I'd even if it was like real I'd nerd shit, in. like somehow getting your hands on them or. Right. On like whatever the aliens screenplay or yeah. you know and and I read all the screenwriting books and uh, you know so I yeah I had already so you were prepared you know I you was, knew you I knew. was pretty dug in um, but you know as you know it's like even if you're prepared and you've done all this research all that really can do is sort of feed your your uh, your egotism of like <laughs> I know how this goes and once you're in any system and particularly in the television system then it's like. Oh, okay. I got to make a lot of adjustments fast. Um, and I think I did that at every step because I didn't, I was in development. So then I went to um, uh, Late Night with Conan. Yeah. I, I, first, first I was in development with with the comedy duo. Then I went, then went sort of that went away. And then I was in, you know, there are troughs, as, I'm, as you've experienced, of like, I'm on top of the world. Yeah, I'll of never course. Be poor Peaks again. and valleys, dude. A hundred percent. With with Fairfax, I was like, I'm never gonna be poor again. <laughs> yep. Like, cut to me in July. Like, oh fuck, I'm poor again. <laughs> um, so uh, you you go to Conan. You were solo Secunda. You're no longer working with Andy. Right. And at that point, I was in a lot of debt. And yeah, and we sort of went our separate ways. And I mean, I had some small, tiny deals, but nothing of of substance. And then uh, I just was doing a lot of stuff in the New York comedy scene and improvising and got to know people and got to know uh, Richter and Janine DiTullio, who was a writer at the time on the sh- or a couple of years before, who I'm still friends with and is amazingly talented. And uh, she, they both sort of, you know, and I think it was actually at the Aspen Comedy Festival that I, that we sort of were hanging around with Jonathan Groff, who I think was you know, sort of, uh, he wasn't head writer when I was hired, but uh, pointed Mike Sweeney toward me, I believe. It was like a series of, yeah. which is... It always is, honestly. That's really the the biggest lesson is like, I don't know if any individual thing that I'm talking about in terms of, you know, the, the sketch duo, improv, um, you know, any of these things, or even the failed development. I don't think anything in particular is a thing that leads to a career. It's just after a while, people know you and you build up skills and you're prepared for things and opportunities come your way. What was the, you know, did you have to like write a packet or the interview process to, to, to get on the Conan staff? What was that like? I did. And uh, Matt Walsh of UCB fame uh, was very, uh, gave me some useful advice that I think made a difference in the packet, which is I'm pretty good at looking at the engineering of a voice, which is why I think I do well on staff and kind of like, oh, okay, this is the thing. And then writing variations for that that are, that are you know, hopefully funny. Um, and his thing was, I feel like if you want to stand out, you should take bigger shots, like go crazy or take bigger, make, make bigger choices. Um, and I think that was the thing that, because everybody, I once came upon a file and it was everyone, and I won't name names of my generation of comedy, most who are more successful than me. Um, and I was like, holy crap, I beat out these people. It's incredible. <laughs> um, so I think that was probably, was the, uh, the thing. And I wrote it 
uh, I believe three times. And uh, Mike Sweeney, bless his heart, said, you know, he w- if if he felt like, oh, these this is a good bet, he would come back and give me notes, and I would change it, and then he would give, come back and give me notes again, and then I would sort of make alterations. And uh, I think I don't. I feel like that was all before Conan saw it because he was trying to give everybody the best, the best shot. Shot once it got to you know. The, the maestro's eyes. And Got it. So. so Conan himself personally would read these. You know, I, I don't know if that's how it is on all late night shows, but that's that's you really make cool. a really good point. It's not something I ever thought about before, but I assume it's just like Conan is has such a writer head and he's, you know, from the lampoon from, you know, way back. And it's just like and not to mention everything else in his career. He was just like he sees it through the eyes of the writer. He would let the writers uh, edit their own and direct their own pieces, which is all, another part of you know just amazing training and such a great opportunity. Um, By the way, am I crazy or were you on a few times doing bits and little things like in the audience? I, I feel like I mean, I, I first of all, Conan to me, it, he's a, d- definitely on Mount Rushmore. He may even have his own Mount Coco, as far as I'm concerned. Like I just. <laughs> I loved Jay Leno too at that time, which I know people are like, you're insane. Um, but I loved Conan so hard. And so it's so wonderful. I appreciate to- that. Thank you, man. You're, you're welcome. Um, so yeah, because like when I first saw you, I was like, and it wasn't for any of the other things that I know that you've done and been on screen for, but I I feel like I specifically remember you like being in the audience or doing some bit. I, I could be wrong. No, but- without, without question. That's, that's how I, it was another way that I, sort of got to know the uh, the writer side of the late night show is that I would, from UCB and from the comedy world, I would be cast in stuff. Mm. And, you know, at one point I was uh, Tamari the Ostrich. I was working his head <laughs> when Tamari was in an orgy with the other late night characters. It's just like the amount of insane things that you saw in the hallways. And once, uh, this is typecasting, I was the devil and... There was another actor. I'm so sorry if that, if that actor, by chance, for chances, is listening. Uh, he was another improviser who was playing Jesus, <laughs> and we were beneath the seats because there was this trap door that led to a secret chamber beneath the seats because we were supposed to pop up halfway through the show uh, on some on another actor's shoulders. And so I I sat there for we sat there for for most of the show as the late night show was happening above us and it was the kind of things that I was just like this is a really unique fun event show business experience that's incredible I I my I'm just adjusting my levels here for a second Andy yeah. um take yourself down take me put me up a little do bit. you need a little more up yeah no no I'm fine um I'm sure I'll be shouting soon what was it like working on that staff like it was that your first writers room. Uh, yes. It sounds like it was. It was. And I think that was an example of a big learning curve. Because I think as, I mean, that show got me out of my first debt. <laughs> I thought that's what I was like. He's going to say debt. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you're having, you know, get, when you're in, you're in the heat of that, that kind of situation, you're having stress nightmares and everything. Oh my God. Yeah. And it was like a year in and I was like, oh my God, I'm. I'm at, I'm ahead. Um, <laughs> I'm in the green. <laughs> so like that was wonderful. Um, but nonetheless, I was still like, I know better. Even though I've watched this this uh, this show and been impressed by the writing for years, and so I think there was a big adjustment of you know figuring out when to talk and when not to talk, and 
when to push your uh, your your opinions and when not. And I think I had a couple of lucky breaks uh, along the way. I think it was early on. One was it was right because I actually started working there virtually right after nine eleven. Oh wow! Um, uh, or right before nine eleven, and then nine eleven happened, and then uh, I was like, "What's what? What do we do?" And um, so there was like, w- we would come in, and we were all like, "Well, what's? How do we?" I think, as Conan says on the show, "How do you? How do we continue doing?" our ridiculous late night show in the, in the face of this tragedy. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody was, was kind of trying to figure it out. And I think because I was sort of shut off to fear or concern about how I looked in the room, cause I didn't know, know enough to be afraid. I pitched, um, um, what if it's just, cause he was like, cause Conan came in and was like, what if it's just, a stupid idea with me. What's a dumb, fun idea with me? And I had been watching Cocktail, and I said, "What if you see Cocktail and you really want to be Tom Cruise in Cocktail, so you go to bartender school?" <laughs> and so then I—that was my first big thing—was going doing this remote with him. Oh, that's awesome! Um, and he was just, you know, obviously fantastic. And then another thing uh, I pitched was, and I pitched Conan on when Star Wars was rebooting because I'm a huge nerd. Um, and I, 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 the previous time when they, when they did the special editions of the Star Wars movies, I got tickets for all my friends and we went to the, the Zigfield. Um, and so then when, uh, Phantom Menace came out, I was like, oh, well, Conan should be on the line sort of. Oh, I remember, of I remember that. And then I think Conan and Robert Smigel, who, yep. you know, I became a sort of a, uh, you know, at least I like to think of him as a little bit of a mentor to me. I don't know if he would want to take credit for that. Uh, he, they said, well, this should be a, a triumph, the insult comic dog piece. And so yep. I got, uh, I remember I that triumph fit me and Kevin door for the right, for the right hand man. Oh, that's, him amazing. On that one. that's amazing. Andy. So uh, this may be a stupid question, but Conan sounds like an amazing boss. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it's, he, he was a writer. So, you know, it's like that's there's both the upside and the downside of that is you're not going to fool him into anything. If he sees it's not working or it's not going to work for the audience, then he's going to, you know, say why and make fun of you. Uh, but he's also someone who has, you know, is so attuned and knows how to fix things. And uh, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, I feel like that's what you want is obviously someone who's got good bullshit detector, but is obviously like a sweetheart and, and a nice person. And um how long did you work on that show for? You know, it was pretty brief. I was only there for two years. Um, and I mean, brief for a, for a staff writing run. And uh, I had the good fortune of uh, when I came off the show of we were nominated for. Um, I saw that for uh, Emmys and WGA Awards. Yeah, which uh, which we won the WGA Awards. Yes, you did. And um and I was then I was like, you know, I had already, you know, had the experience of developing d- development. And now I had, you know, a, a, a recent kind of fancy TV credit. That's so insane. Then I went into <laughs> another series of, of development uh, situations that were, you know, really promising. And then it was it got a little bit more momentum where it was like. Uh, you know, I would, you know, a pilot would be made and, you know, because at this point 
like from my previous experience with development, I was like, all right, I guess my job is that I'm a professional huckster. I will come out here and I will trick someone into buying something from me and then I will go back to New York because nothing ever else happens. Mm -hmm. And so now we were in a new era where it was like, you know, uh, shows would be actually pilots would be made for me. <laughs> and then and then I just did the new thing of like, oh, I guess uh, now the pilot will be made and then I'll go back to New York. I kept I kept like my apartment in New York uh, all the way through to um, the late, you know, like probably 2010, 2011. Wow. Um, and uh, that was my, my rental. Um, By the way, I feel like I met you probably around 2013, 2014. Oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty early. I mean, like uh, through Nikki, I think, because like I would always see like on Instagram, like you and 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 her cadre of friends, and then there was like that meats. Is it meat sweats or meat dinner or beef fucking burger? Beef yeah, beef steak. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I'd be like, who are all these cool comedy writers? And like, are all friends? And like, they're so fu fun. I wish I were friends with them. And then. You know, like I this is this is the purpose of Instagram. Totally, I'm, I'm sure I didn't feel that way. Oh well, listen, it, it felt cool to me. Like, and enough with like Dan Levy, even not yeah. Shit's Creek Dan Levy, John Mulaney, Dan Laney, yeah. as I called him, the important one. <laughs> yeah, like, Dan, how do you feel about that? I stop <laughs> characterization. I guess it's a good it's a good person to be attached. Only to. recently is he John Mulaney, Dan Levy. Yeah, but it's just I would say not Shit's Creek Dan Levy was how I would because whenever you say Dan Levy the last two years, can I actually be John Mulaney, Andy Secunda? That would that would probably help my. Sure, <laughs> I would have be John Mulaney, Matt Housefeder, whatever. I'll be whoever you need me to be. Um, but through Instagram, I stalked him because I saw that he was friends with all you guys. And I was like, he has vintage Green Day shirts and like Nikes and he's writing. And I think he wrote, um, you know, with Whitney and Chris back in the day. And like, I feel like we overlap, but it was because I would see um, your class, so to speak, of people on Instagram of like, they that's such a wonderful community. Like, and to get to be a part of that community, even if it was just like Nikki and Will's crawfish boil or whatever it was, it was nice because as a young aspiring writer, I saw like, oh, there's like this community and look at these successful people. And like, you know, they 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 have fun and they have houses in Echo Park and whatever, you know, it, it looked like a beautiful life. I mean, I don't know about a beautiful life, but I definitely agree about the uh, the friend group. And I think I was very lucky to have uh, have met that that group of people because it is. Uh, you know, it's it's obviously such a cutthroat is such a cliche, but you know, it's a competitive business, yeah. and it's it's hard to find people that you really connect with and think are talented and funny and trust and have a lot of fun with. Um, that's like a a huge you know series of things to line up, um, and that have your back. So I you know I mean. In that case, I would agree. The other stuff, I, w I wouldn't agree with your jealousy, your, the jealousy of your younger <laughs> self. But in that aspect, I would agree. I think I was very lucky to have met all those people. Uh, absolutely. Um, which brings me to, I, I don't know if that's where you met Nikki, but I'm just jumping around here in your career, is Goldberg's. I think I had met, I'd known Nikki before. We're talking about Nikki Schwartz, right, by Nikki the way. Who, she's yes. coming on the podcast next week. Oh, so great. maybe we'll do a follow-up about uh, her memories of this time as well. If you're listening to this episode, I would just skip ahead to that one. That one's going to be much more interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I knew her before because she was Jason Weiner. Is that how you say that? I think so, yeah. Jason Weiner's, um, um, I think, assistant at that, at that point. And uh, and so I think we had sort of 
we'd sort of become acquainted then, but we became like, you know, BFFs on, on Goldberg's, uh, where I know she has referred to me as her comedy husband, which I take as a great badge of honor. That is, now, an, I, honestly, it's an incredible I badge don't, of honor. I don't know if that is, uh, that she refers to other people as her comedy husband. I've never heard it in I'm response to anyone else. On. Okay, good. Never heard it about anyone else. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, we just, it would just it completely fell in love with each other. It was, it's just, she's just one of the most amazing, delightful, fun, talented, funny people. And you just finished, is that what's going to be the, com- the last season of Goldberg's? That's right. Um, uh, is that season 10? Season 10. Oh my God. Isn't that crazy. Is that like the longest running sitcom at the moment in, in like in some time or is there something you know, else? I should have this factoid at the ready and I don't. It's people, someone threw that at me recently and I was like, that can't be, can it? Like longest running live action. You're just saying of recent years or you're saying of all time? No, like I feel like in the past decade, I mean like Modern Family is what I would say before Goldberg's, right. but like I think, I don't know how many seasons Modern Family did, but I mean- It must be more. We can- uh, we It definitely is more. We, get a, no- we get a number crunch on that, Secunda. He's yeah. taking out his phone. Ask, I love it. Ask your producer. <laughs> um, uh you know, and it's crazy because I remember reading the Goldbergs pilot and thinking to myself, like, A, oh, my God, is America going to give a shit about a Jewish family? Uh, because most people don't love the Jews. Yeah. Um, and B, this is one of the funniest things I've ever read. And I remember the tag with the hoverboard. And, like, I think, I don't know if the, if that stayed in the original shooting pilot that ended up on ABC. Um, <laughs> That's a fascinating question. Like, we definitely did hoverboard stuff later on. Yeah. I don't remember in the pilot. In the pilot. They I, definitely, I think they must have had a clip of it. Yeah, there was like it's it's in the beginning, like right. they show. Um, I forget which, which that really shows it. Adam Goldberg's sensibility even more than showing the DeLorean. Although I think the DeLorean might have been in there too, but that's like right in that Back to the Future two zone. That's his that's his era. That's his sweet Whereas spot. I was probably more Back to the Future. So have you? But can I just go back a second? Yes. Uh, where did you hear that people don't think well of the Jews? I don't. Uh... Uh, just sort of historically, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, sort is of that in the news in, in the diaspora, <laughs> as it were. Uh, but yeah, I remember reading that, and I was like, can a can a can a sitcom about a Jewish family like like obviously there's Seinfeld and obviously there's Curb, but like for every Seinfeld, Seinfeld there's three million shows that want to be Seinfeld that never end up any of them. And you know what's interesting about Seinfeld and the Goldbergs is. I want like Seinfeld is so I guess both shows are so Jewy, I can say. Yeah, no, you I can. The tribe. You're a you um, Juden. Um that uh nobody come after me. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh they're so Jewy in sensibility. Yeah. Um and yet the neither calls out the Jewishness in any way. And I know that it was a thing for for the Goldbergs, and I wonder if it was a thing for Seinfeld, where the Goldbergs, it seemed like from what we would hear and see from much of America, even though everybody would say, oh, Beverly Goldberg is my mother, nobody would, like a lot of people wouldn't process that they were Jews. Like <laughs> You I would think with they, a name like Goldberg, it might click. They processed it as German or something or something Bizarre. else. Bizarre. But it's like a lot of people would, it, and so I don't know if that's just like I like these people, therefore they're not Jews or what it was. But it was—it's very interesting, and we certainly—it was a very, you know, a secular family. So it's not, you know, yeah, it, we didn't. It, it was as the show went on, they got more and more Jewish, and things were called out. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, uh, did you guys ever do a Hanukkah episode? I'm sure you must. There have. were Hanukkahs, like the early Hanukkah episodes. I think were. 
um, you know, is about like that uh that it was a very christmas driven family uh, and then the and then the grandfather played by george siegel would be offended and so he would try and make hanukkah as fun as christmas like that kind of a thing got it got it and so were you there for all 10 or did you you I, and by the way if 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 you're like matt shut the fuck up like i don't want to get into the intricacies of <laughs> did you go and work on you worked and directed an episode of schooled Yes, I went. Uh, I don't even remember what season that was, but it was it was toward the the, the three fourth mark of um, of uh, um, of the show. Uh, I uh, I switched from Goldberg's to the spinoff Schooled, uh, and I was there for two years. Um, which my uh, my uh, good friend, another hilarious, amazing writer, Mark Farrick, co created with Adam. And um, uh, and then towards the end of that run, I directed. So, and that was part of the reason that I switched. Yeah, because I wanted to open up. Did you enjoy directing uh, network comedy? Was that your first like big four network comedy show that you directed? Yes, and that got me into the DGA. And uh, the interesting thing about that is uh, the one of the big episodes that I directed was the uh, was the finale. Uh, which was shot the week that COVID shut the world down. Oh wow! So while it was happening, and this is why there was, was, you know, and uh, you know, it's always hard for a writer to make that transition. But if I do say is where they were, they were lucky to have a writer on set. Is we would lose a location, then I would have to rewrite the scene. Oh my god! We were gonna shoot. We were shooting a clueless parody in front of the clueless fountain. We weren't no longer. The city said you can't shoot it there. We're not allowing anyone. You know, it's because of insurance, because of COVID. Yep. So I had to rewrite it for scenes. It's just like so. Um, so it was a it was a trial by fire. But I, you know, I I like the trial by fire when it comes to directing. Fun That's fact: why I want to direct. Shares house in Clueless is an Encino. That's a fun fact. Oh, interesting. I thought maybe you were going to say, oh, so we moved and pivoted to shot at the Encino location of Shares House. No. Um, okay, and so then you went back for the final season. I did. Yes. Um, uh, this last season, which was a delight, um, and uh, Alex Barno and uh, and uh, Chris Bishop are now running it, um, and it was uh, you know, it was really fun and nice and just a, a joy. I was like, you know, shows can be uh, a little bit difficult, yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, it was just everybody knows what they're doing at this point that the system had been worked out, so. It was it was just really really great to return. Well, I'm really excited to ask you about this next question because I know you know obviously you know about writing and comedy, but what you really uh, thrive and get off on is is food. And so I wanted to ask what was what was the lunch situation uh, at the Goldbergs like for those many seasons? Um, are there do's and don'ts? Like, what are your opinions on a writer's room lunch? Just sort of feel free to free associate and, and go off <laughs> off the, off the top of your dome, Andy. <laughs> Well, uh, Matt are, are big uh, food brothers. <laughs> we, I think most of the t- places, times we've run into each other were just we were eating somewhere yes. and saw each other. We're pretty obsessive about it. Uh, and uh, Andy had his first Armenian Tarzana Armenian deli today, and I say that because I want to shout them out. Uh, I feel like they should sponsor this podcast, even if I get nothing in return. I love them so much. Get the free meals, minimal. Yeah, I'll take it. Them. I'll take it. It was delicious. And Matt finished it by saying, "Would you like some confetti cake?" And I thought he was. He was saying, you know, one of the sweet baby Jane kind of like, oh, you, you mean me means one of those cakes. I'm like, sure, yeah, I'll have some of those. Comes out, it's actual birthday cake. His his lovely wife 
made with just cans of frosting. So virtually, <laughs> there is no, I don't know if anybody else would have been like, Ooh, this is a little gauche. There is no <laughs> person on earth that he could have concocted a more perfect situation for. Like, you just scoop out your own frosting, <laughs> you put it on yellow confetti cake, box cake, which is what, I literally would request that if anybody said, well, what's your favorite dessert? That is what I would say. It's the best. It's like, it's pure uncut sugar. It's so wonderful. So yeah. if I pass out uh, in a few minutes, then that's That's the why. Anyway, uh, so I'm very passionate uh, it has caused a, a good deal of, uh, of aggressiveness and confrontation over the course of the jobs that I've had. I've tried to kind of, you know, ease off and, uh, and sort of just go, okay, but it's hard when you get to the end of a day and you're, you know, especially if you're staying late and you're ordering dinner, you know, you got a lot invested in what that meal's going to be. And if it's like, it's this place that we've all agreed None of us want, but it's easy and it's close or it's easy for, you know, people to pick up. And that I understand because it's like, you don't want to make it hard on the assistants since that's where you have a, you know, a moral quandary. But it's like, we're all agreed this place is lame and nobody's going to stand up and say, let's get something else. And uh, the truth is uh, no, because writers are, can be very uh, non-confrontational. But Andy will do it, and that's why Andy is not the most beloved person. And then there are other situations, and also you got, of course, it's like, what would you, what would you liken this to, Matt? If you're, if you're, is it, is it dating? Is it marriage? Where it's like one person is say a vegan and one person is a meat eater. Like that's what this, or it's roommates. I guess roommates don't have to eat the same thing. So. It's like like that that is a real problem because some people are like, well, I can't eat anything that's X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And it's like, well, that reduces it to only things we you know, the rest of us don't want to eat. Well, we see the way that this was done on Undateable, and I want to ask you how you guys did it on Goldberg's. You can tell me how you did it on Conan, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. On Undateable, there would be a menu on your desk. Um, and for those of you out there that are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, usually you get free lunch in writer's rooms. Um, more so on big budget network shows. Um, but uh, every day you order lunch and it could be a point of contention or uh, exciting. If you were, you know, uh, one night could be a celebration, boss is getting sugar fish, whatever. Um, but on Dateable to alleviate this, like, are we're all going to pick and fight about where we're having lunch today. There was a fucking menu on your desk. You circled what you want and you handed it to the office PA and that's what you got for lunch. There was no, like, if five or six people revolted and were like, Granville again? Like, it would become a thing. But for the most part, right. it was... Granville are- is the quintessential <laughs> writer's room thing. Because it's kind of like, yeah, it's good. It's, yeah. It's good. Uh, yeah, yeah, There's it's, something I could get. Like a get. selection. Yeah. But it's like, whatever you get is... No, no shade on Granville. Not but, at all. But I guess I'm throwing a little shade. Yeah. It's like, whatever you get is going to be like, yeah, this is food. Have you gotten into like actual somewhat confrontations about where where we're having lunch? A hundred percent. Oh, I love this. Oh, please tell 100%. me more. hundred percent. I mean, at least, you know, first of all, there's also things of like, if there's, what was the chicken? Oh, I wish I could remember. Um, um, so. Let me help you work this out. You're trying to recall a certain chicken. It's a chicken on the the west side. Okay. Uh, and it's well thought of, and um, maybe it's Jelena. Okay, that sounds right. That sounds like a fancy writer's room lunch, though. Uh, yeah, that was that wasn't a lunch. That was a dinner. 
Um, and the argument I had was with Daisy Gardner. And Daisy Gardner and I would would fight a lot about various things. Um, just yeah, chemistry. We both, I think, we both... Uh, passionate. You're both you know, passionate We both people. had a great deal of affection for each other and had a great deal of respect for each other. But uh, it was just, uh, we're two, we're two arguing people. Um, she would probably deny that she was an arguing pe- person, which would get us into an argument. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, there was, there was, there were always, they always ran out of, I believe it's the chicken at Jelena and I really wanted to try it. And so I said to the, uh, the PAs in advance, just like, if we're getting Jelena here, there's talk we're getting Jelena. I want the chicken. And then something happened where the assistant went in to ask the other room first Mm. And <laughs> when you say other room, you mean like there was an A, was room, an a room or B and a room? B room? And then they came to us and they said, oh, I'm sorry, the chicken's gone. And I was like, the chicken couldn't be gone. <laughs> because I specifically hear a question. Specifically. And then, and then uh, we heard from the other room, it's like, well, uh, Daisy has, has already requested it. I'm like, unless you're telling me that Daisy requested it literally before I requested it two hours ago, requested it two hours ago, <laughs> then I get that chicken. And she can get whatever she wants. And I think there's a video of me storming from one from the B room to the A room to confront her. And uh, and I think whatever it was, it was like, all right, there was some time hitch where somehow the thing was put in before my thing. And mm. so I was like, all right, I'm going to bow to that. I but, guess you get the chicken then. Um, and then there was another thing that actually happened this last year on the, uh, on the, on the Goldbergs. Um, and, uh, I'll, uh, I, I always, we got our coffee lists. This is, this is a, uh, this is a, it's funny you say that. Cause I was about to ask you about coffee order etiquette. This is, this is a, this is going to be a, a perfect, a perfect thing. Uh, Jeff Thompson, delightful, funny individual, first year on a show, uh, very funny, uh, so, so uh, I will admit right off the top, I was being a dick for, uh, for even engaging in this <laughs> with him. Um, but, uh, what would happen when the coffee list came around? Um, I would get my own coffee in the morning and then, uh, and then I would kind of feel like I don't necessarily need more caffeine when the afternoon coffee list came around. Now, by I the also, way, where are you guys ordering coffee from when you say coffee list? It, Different places or always we're going to the same place? This is the thing I don't have the investment in. I don't have the, even though I palate for every you know kind of food, I don't have the palate for coffee that I know Dan Levy was always pushing hard for Starbucks. <laughs> because, I mean, I know he would pick a more, even more gourmet coffee, but he's trying to pick an easy place as opposed to coffee bean, which was the on-lot coffee at Sony. Oh, I love a coffee bean. That's so interesting. See, I, it's, to me, the cof- coffee bean is is preferable. Can you guess why? Because it, it's fucking sugary. Like, you can get yeah. like a vanilla coffee yeah. frappuccino. Not a frappuccino. You can get a vanilla coffee ice blended ice with blended. whip. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, people you- at a certain point would know my, my tastes and my gluttony so well that I would come back and there would be you know, an extra large, you know, giant ice blended. And I would say, this doesn't have whipped cream or the uh, the chocolate uh, espresso swirl. I don't know what you guys are doing. Um, but anyway, so yeah, people would push for Starbucks. Anyway, so there was a list and, you know, I would say, uh, you know, uh, Annette, who was, who was the, uh, the line producer, uh, just, you know, a, a fantastic, uh, you know, skilled professional that worked wonders and got us our we we had a it was annette davis who uh who was the 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 producer uh, and eventually an executive producer for the for the run of the show um she would get us a buffet style situation for lunch 
uh, every day. Um, and then also get a free coffee in the afternoon. And I would push for a while, let's get our coffee in the morning, because that's when I have my coffee. And everyone was like, no, we want it to be a nice little treat in the afternoon. <laughs> nice like, little treat. Right. That's so and how I the writers said, put well, it. I love it. Since I'm trying to not have more caffeine in the afternoon, why don't I write down a treat instead? I'll write down a, you know, a nice uh, lemon loaf or, uh, or a blueberry muffin. And um, I knew I was uh, dancing. You know, I was, I was, uh, I was uh, flying a little too close to the sun on that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> even though like people would get mad if you, even if you stayed within the budget of the coffee that everyone else was getting. Well, this was my argument, Matthew. That's exactly what I said. Yeah, who cares? Well, here's where it, here's where it all fell apart. Okay. One day, Jeff, and I think he he would argue he was trying to do a nice thing. I think he was a little bit of a prankster, and maybe it was something else. But you know, I'll let history decide. Um, he uh, he, when I was out of the room, sort of writing a scene on on my own. <laughs> He wrote down, because uh, he didn't know whether I wanted the lemon loaf or I think it was the coffee cake was the other thing I got. So he wrote both down. Oh, boy. And that was the day that Annette looked at the uh, the list and was like, what is this? <laughs> I know. A question, though, before you go on. Yes. Did the cost of the lemon bar and the coffee cake exceed the price of a coffee? I haven't looked, but I bet you it didn't. It certainly wouldn't an ice blended. No. Yeah, and I was next to the large ice blended, which is the other thing I might have gotten. So this is my logic issue. But whatever the case, uh, she saw it and she said, no more treats. And I saw a... Uh, I saw a... <laughs> I think it was just... I think it was just my, uh, or was it? Actually, I think, <laughs> Riley, if you're out there, you can send a correction into the show. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, uh, Riley, who is uh, one of our one of our uh, skilled writer's assistants, was coming to my door to tack on a note saying, uh, I'm sorry, there is no more <laughs> treats allowed for your coffee orders. And then I opened the door and she was like... <gasps> <laughs> she had to just hold up the sign to me <laughs> um and uh uh there you go and so i was i i was i was uh pretty uh pretty irked that someone had uh had messed with my si- and i said to jeff i have a system you don't understand because going back to the confrontation this is really who the confrontation's worth because annette and i annette is looking out for the show yeah. i don't blame her she's looking out for the budget if there's ever like, you know, every once in a while there'd be a crazy, you know, place we were ordering from, you know, I would take advantage. We were staying late. I would try and work within the system as well as, a, you know, I wasn't ordering a bottle of wine. <laughs> no. I was ordering, you know, a side here. A, ta- would, a table side. I would get the steak and maybe it was the expensive steak, but I would get the, you know, I would put things together. By the way, how sad is having to eat that steak with plastic cutlery once you do get it? That's fucking sad. It, it does take the uh, it takes the delight out of it somewhat, <laughs> yeah. but uh, my stomach was happy in any event. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there was there there came to be a little bit of a, of a watching what Secunda ordered. I, I love think. it that Secunda watch. Yeah. I love it. It's yeah. like a sig alert. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you if coffee etiquette asked like, oh, showrunner pays for coffee because that's what we used to do on Undateable where. Whoever was the richest person in the room, which was usually Bill, would would have to pay for coffee. And if he was out, the next richest person or highest senior writer had to pay for coffee. So if it the showrunner was not the richest person, no. It- if 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 Bill was gone or like at a meeting or wherever he was on the lot, right? Who like whoever was the next highest paid writer? Gotcha. You know, like co EP whatever would have to pay for coffee. Now, which, what do you what do you do on a situation like your you know uh, like Fairfax where it's like you guys are theoretically the top of the heap but uh you know you're uh 
You're not driving Maseratis. Interesting question, because we did m- the second season on Zoom. We fought very hard so that each of our writers could get a $15 Postmates stipend. Uh-huh. So you could order whatever you wanted for lunch, and then we would reimburse you for 15 bucks of that. But we didn't really do coffees, because it's like, I'm not Postmating you coffee during a pandemic. Season one... Um, there's also COVID rolls, which are a little yeah. Different. Season one, I I don't know if everyone was big coffee drinkers. We had like a pot. People preferred the shitty Folgers or Starbucks, like pour in the, you know, like I I was a PA way back in the day too. So I'm used to like so we make a big pot of coffee and then that's what we drink from instead of everybody's getting Starbucks. So we just did pot coffee. Gotcha. Yeah. It's interesting. Did yeah. you have veterans on your staff? I feel like, look, I didn't, as I say, I don't care. I don't have a palate for Peter it. Peter Knight was the veteran, and he obviously the most generous guy ever. He would pay most of the time when any check came, he was the first to whip out a credit card and pay. But I guess I'm saying, did he balk at the pot coffee? Oh, no, he loved it. Oh, okay. Some of my fondest memories of that show where I'd come in and he'd be there early, like, you know, we had a Bluetooth thing and he would put on whatever and I'd see him like making coffee in the morning. It was lovely. Okay. Sometimes people have issues with it. Yeah. I Not not me. Did you guys have issues with pot coffee? I mean, I think that, you know, they're the people who are the real, the real coffee mavens who are like, ah, why aren't we getting here? Why, is, why aren't we getting this? Why aren't we? And I, you know, and it's like, you know what? You know what? I don't even know what to compare this to. It's like that's a more societally acceptable like specificity than to me what should be more, which is food and where we're ordering from. Yeah. I don't get it. Andy, last thing I want to talk to you about. Do you believe the next season of Curb is going to be the last season as it was just announced yesterday? Is Curb Your Enthusiasm really going away? And for those of you listening who haven't done your homework, Andy has been on Curb. So this is why he... And by the way, he may not be allowed to say. And if he's not, that's okay too. I really appreciate that because me and Larry have been powwowing and I don't want to betray his trust. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my best friend Larry from that one day I was on Curb. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, was... Uh, but Andy, to, to us, even yeah. like another buddy, Andrew Santino or Skylar Gisondo... Anybody who's been on Curb to the people that love Curb, it's like you're in Curb mythology. Like you've been in the David, uh, I'm sorry, you've been in the Larry David cinematic universe. You know, like you are. I mean, I'm. I don't dispute it. I, okay, like, good. That is not like no. I to me that was like. It's also like it's two two sides of it. It's like Curb and like you know, it's it's both him on Curb, him from Seinfeld, yeah. and then also, uh, you know, coming from the improv world, I'm performing. With you know one one of the one of if not the preeminent television improviser of of the past you know fifty years yeah. like it's just like and it and it was exactly like that it was really interesting um, and I th- he came from stand up so it's really fascinating that he's just like and I've taught improv I performed you know with the with the greats um, and uh, it was really amazing how it feels. It felt like fantasy cam. It felt like, oh, this guy is attentive to every tiny detail. He drives it in a comedic direction. He's like, it's just, he's thinking about the the script and how this is going to cut together. It's just, it's just astonishing. So it was really totally, I'm with you. Um uh, and and I don't. I have no idea. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, me the show is I'm like, you're never gonna. There's no me. way. I think it's really just. Uh, I think it's, it's entirely. And I think this is maybe one of the last bastions of this in show business. It's entirely like, oh, I want to do another one. And then he, they just let him do another one. Yeah. <laughs> or not. 
He's the king. I don't. Why would he ever say this is the last one? Other I don't than know, press? but like I saw Deadline why News. Why do directors break? go? I this is I'm retiring. It's like no, you're not Quentin Tarantino. What I, are you talking I about? I hate like when Jay Z did that too, and he came back, and I was like, you fucking like LCD Sound System also does that. It's like we're retired, we're unretired, we're retired. It's like every time you need money, you fucks unretire. We know this is going to happen <laughs> eventually, so just stop retiring. Just like. As someone who is on the other side of the desk, do you, is your take that that is like, eh, this would be a story? One other thing that I sort of thought was like, is it like, well, I'm tired of answering the question of what's my next project, so mm. this will shut it down. I'm retired. Mm. You mean like specifically with Larry David? Not him so much as like, it's really more directors, like Steven Soderbergh saying he's retired and Tarantino. and You know, Tarantino's the one where I'm like, Maybe he would like this is gonna be his tenth movie or whatever. This is the one I would think at the least. Really? He, like oh, Soderbergh you think, like, at least has other interests. Tarantino doesn't have other interests. He's a he film does director. like feet. He does like well, feet. He does, yeah, but I mean, I feel like even then, it's like the two <laughs> loves are tied. You know, you can't. <laughs> yeah, I hope he doesn't retire. I love. I mean, I love Tarantino. I hope he doesn't retire. I Soderbergh. hope he retires. I hate Quentin Tarantino I, movies. Not my taste at all. Some people don't. Some people are like hack, and I'm like, you're crazy. Hack. Yeah, people are just like hack. hack. See, not my taste or true or other issues. Some people are just like Django, hateful eight. Like he just like you know he just shock value. Like there's no and I'm like you're crazy. Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs are even one um, uh, bastards and glorious bastards. Like Jackie Brown. Like the more that I think about that, I'm just like oh he's the fucking best. Please don't please don't retire. Since this show uh, is one of the few places I can tell this story, um, uh, will you indulge me? Yes. A little bit, which... Are you about to tell me a Tarantino story? I'm about to tell you a Tarantino story. Yeah, let's close with this. This that is, is going to be great. That is a, it's going to be a humble brag story, um, but it was completely batshit. Um, and and I don't think I've ever told it anywhere else. Um, I was uh, on um, Love Incorporated, which was the show of mine that did go, that was on UPN. Um, I like to I like to think that uh, my show was the show that canceled UPN. <laughs> Um, uh, and we went a full season and it was, uh, you know, delightful work with, uh, busy Phillips, um, and, uh, you know, Adam Chase and, uh, uh, Holly Robinson, Pete and, uh, a bunch of people that are not part of the story. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, we're in the writer's room and, uh, everybody, everybody knows I'm a Tarantino head and, uh, at some point, uh, uh, someone comes in, one of the assistants, and says, um, Tarant someone from Tarant uh, Quentin Tarantino's office called and said that they would like a tape of the the last episode of the show. And I was like, ha, 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 really funny, guys. It was great. Yeah, and he loves Tarantino. So what if he was watching Love, Inc., and he wanted an episode of the show? <laughs> and then um, and then I found out later, it's like, well, it's people from casting. They're interested in people in the show because Taren, uh, Quentin was watching it. And uh, and I was like, can you clarify what, what's going on just in, on the outside chance? So, well, Ter Quentin was watching it, and he sort of liked some of the people in the episode. It was like a big episode with a lot of different characters. And... Um, and so he he wanted to uh, he wanted to to uh, to sort of find out about them, find out their 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 reps. And I was like, I, I, the, you guys did a good job of adding some nuance to this insane lie that Quentin Tarantino sitting at home watching Love Incorporated on UPN. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and uh, and then I go to see Inglorious Bastards uh, with a friend of mine, uh, and uh, we uh, and it was Jessica Chaffin, and then she um, knew the director who was friends of him, the horror director. Robert Rodriguez? No. no not Robert Rodriguez. Eli uh, Roth? Eli Roth. And he was having a party. And she's like, do you want to come to the party? And I was like, sure. Um, and uh, we went, and Tarantino was there. Oh, boy. And I was like, See, I don't know if this is a bad idea. <laughs> good idea. It's a good is. idea. <laughs> because it's so, it's so like, you know, how, how, is, how is that story going to turn out well for me if it's, an, if it's a who are you? No. So I go up, and um, I go... I really apologize, Mr. Tarantino. This is, you know, this is a completely insane thing. Um, I created Love Incorporated, and I was in the room one day, and someone said, and he cuts me off. He goes, "Love Incorporated." He starts <laughs> quoting lines. Oh my to me god! Of this this sitcom on UPN. Look, I'm, I'm proud of the work I've done on all my jobs. It's not something where I'm like, hey. At the end of my career, I want you to remember Love Incorporated. <laughs> it's like I'm proud of many jokes that that myself and the staff wrote on that show. It was what it purported to be. It was a UPN sitcom, um, you know, multicam sitcom. And he's like, he remembers everything from it. That's amazing. I was shocked. That's incredible. <laughs> um, to the point where I was like, you know, it was a reverse of like most fan experiences are like, I'm so overwhelmed and I, you know, I don't know what to say. And so I walk away. This was like the blast of him actually knowing what I did was so much that I literally froze my brain. And, and he's a passionate guy. So he probably was like very enthusiastic. So enthusiastic, like saying, you know, talking about everything you liked about it. Did you feel like you had to tell him you liked his? I mean, he knows, but like, did you ever tell him like, oh, I love blah. I think I opened with, saying uh the uh spoilers for inglorious bastards um uh the you know just the the sort of wish fulfillment of you know i was like oh i don't wonder how they're gonna get around killing hitler at the end of this and then them doing it i was just like oh man what a satisfying you know and that it's so bloody so i started with a huge not a huge compliment it's a fraction of a compliment but uh is that your favorite tarantino um i mean it's hard to beat Fiction. Yeah, I was gonna say it's that's my like time. It's a perfect movie. It's my all time fave. Yeah, um, Andy, thank you for coming and dining with me today and doing thank this podcast. Uh, it was a pleasure, and, I, and I'm uh, I'm honestly honored that you came all the way to Laurel Canyon to do this. I'm honored to uh, that you would have me on. By the way, I did sort of like bully you into this. I realized Andrew was like, "Oh, we're doing your podcast," and I was like, "Yeah, like I don't even remember." <laughs> you had mentioned it before, <laughs> and then you said you want to have lunch. So oh, I, like, I meant like I feed you before yeah, the I podcast. I, I apologize. That. So I hope you didn't feel like I was only coming. No, for it because no. I'm not above it. No. If you had said I, yeah, I have confetti cake and and uh, oh, I knew how to get you in cans. I knew how to get you. It's like a bear with a with a salmon at the <laughs> sure, end of a fucking rod. Be scratching at the windows. Yeah. Well, thank you anyway, dude. I, I really appreciate it, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Let's hope so. I know so. Bye.